This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. We'll be looking at all the entire chapter of Genesis 18. Hear now God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servants. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. Sorry. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. And he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. He said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. And let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would know what is true concerning your word, that we would recognize even in this text the glories of your gospel and our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the pressing realities of wrath and judgment on rebellion and sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some weeks ago now, we witnessed in our text in Genesis a division in the city of God. We saw how Abraham and his nephew Lot, after their return from Egypt, had become too prosperous. There was not enough land and resources available for them to dwell in the same place. And so they decided that they needed to separate. Now remember, Abraham allowed Lot to make the first choice of where he wanted to go. This was a great advantage for Lot. He got to pick the best of the best land. And so he picked the plain of the Jordan, the area near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Pragmatically and economically speaking, it was a good decision. There was access to water, access to cities and trade, and all the things that come with that. But what has happened in our story since? Well, for one, the plain of the Jordan was invaded by Keterleomer and the kings of the north. The only thing that saved Lot and Sodom was Abraham and his allies with him. They intervened and they delivered the people of Sodom from Keterleomer. And really, it was in that episode that we saw the only appearance of Lot since the separation. But in the meantime, God has continued to bless and enlarge Abraham, despite the earthly disadvantages he faced. Abraham received the covenants from the Lord. He had a son, though he has now been told that he will have another son who will carry forth the covenant promises. 
God has promised to multiply Abraham into great nations many times over. Abraham's wealth and property has continued to grow. Now, things haven't been perfect. There was, for instance, the episode with Hagar in chapter 16, where Abraham and Sarah resorted to pragmatic and practical solutions that actually proved to be very wrong and sinful. And that will continue to produce problems. And yet it is clear, even despite the things like this, that God is with Abraham and blessing him and faithful to his promises. So it will have been by this point around 15 years since Abraham and Lot separated when we come to chapter 18. And we haven't heard much else from Lot. We will find out in this chapter some of what is going on in Sodom, and we will see it in all of its gory details, Lord willing, next week. God is on his way to deal with Sodom. But in the meanwhile, he will once again visit his chosen family, Abraham and his house, to speak to them again concerning the covenant blessings and the things that are to come to pass. And so we will look at this visitation this week to the house of Abraham in three points. First, we see hospitality in verses 1 through 8. Abraham receives these visitors, though it turns out they're anything but ordinary. Second, we see hope in verses 9 through 19. Those visitors will tell Abraham about what is to come for him in his house. And third, we see a horror in verses 20 through 33. The visitors reveal their intent to go address the great sin and wickedness in Sodom. And Abraham attempts to intercede for them. So again, we have hospitality and hope and horror. So first we will look at the hospitality in verses 1 through 8. We see that Abraham remains by the terebinth tree at Mamre. This is where Abraham went when Lot separated from him. It was from there that Abraham launched the campaign to deliver Lot and the people of Sodom from the kings of the north. It seems that he has remained there this whole time. After the 13-year gap before Abraham received further revelation in the last chapter, in chapter 17, not a lot of time passes before the Lord visits Abraham again. It has been less than the time from when the Lord promised that Isaac would be born uh, to when he's actually been born. That still has not yet come. But we see that three men come to visit. We know what may not yet be apparent to Abraham, that one of these three is God. And it is very probable, given that this is a visible appearance of the invisible God, that this is the same angel of the Lord who appeared to Hagar in the wilderness in chapter 16, the pre-incarnate Christ. The other two are angels, just regular angels as regular as angels can be. And we see there the ones that will go on to Sodom in chapter 19. But in these opening verses, we see that Abraham shows great hospitality. Now, hospitality has been a thing throughout all of human civilization, and it still is a thing in our day, and we should appreciate that and practice that and be grateful for it. But in the ancient world, there was an even far greater emphasis on hospitality. You think about it, they were living in an age where they didn't have cars, 
They didn't have air conditioners in their cars because they didn't have cars and they didn't have air conditioners. So all that to say, if you're out traveling, traveling is a much more difficult proposition and you would need more help and it was better to receive help along the way. It was a greater need than there is now. And especially in this part of the world. Remember, Israel is surrounded by desert. It's a very hot climate. And so there needs to be provisions made for the heat. Now, we're not sure if Abraham immediately recognized anything unusual about these travelers. It says they appear as men. They seem to act like and do the sort of things that men do. We hear about them eating and drinking and washing. They have taken a real and physical form. Abraham does pay them some respect. He addresses them as Lord, but it's not the all caps Lord, not the particular covenantal name. And there is some of the bowing and such. But it's unclear again if he knows that uh, there's something special, something divine about this visitation, or if he was just this nice to everyone and he's showing the honor due to an honored guest. John Calvin, for one, writes that such practices, this bowing and addressing as Lord and stuff, were common cultural practices to honor guests, and maybe Abraham was just doing that. There's this entreating of favor that Abraham does, which is, again, something he might do to God, but also something you would do if you're trying to butter up guests. So, again, we're not exactly sure if Abraham immediately recognizes who he's dealing with. But he's going to know before long. Because it is clear that God and the two angels with him have taken a normal human form, such that they need to eat and drink and wash. And so Abraham wants to provide for them. In fact, he gives them the royal treatment. He gets Sarah to start making bread. He has one of his servants prepare a fresh calf. They're going to have more than just a normal meal. They're going to have something of a feast there together. But after this hospitality that Abraham shows, we come to the hope in verses 9 through 19. So Sarah's initial involvement in this story is the preparation of food. She's tasked with making the bread so they could eat it. She doesn't seem to be involved in any of the discussion. But God, as he has presented himself in this human form, he asks Abraham, about her. Where is Sarah, your wife? Well, Abraham says that she's there in the tent. And in fact, it turns out she's behind the door near Abraham. It seems that she may in fact be eavesdropping on the conversation. Now, mind you, they are in a tent, so you can't expect too much privacy at any given time. But this conversation is initially given the appearance that Sarah is not there and can't hear And this visitor says, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, or other translations say the same time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now in verse 11, in case we forgot, we get a reminder that Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah had ceased having the normal natural functions that would lead to her conceiving and bearing a child. So if this promise is going to come to pass, it is going to have to come by supernatural intervention. Remember from before that Sarah has acknowledged that it was God who closed her womb. It is God who has withheld children. And yet while Sarah acknowledges God's power to withhold children, 
She doesn't seem willing to acknowledge God's ability to reverse this situation and give her children. And that is still the case here. It has happened before, but it happens here again. We read in verse 12 that Sarah laughs to herself at the implausibility of her having a child at her age. But she doesn't know who Abraham is talking to. And they both are about to find out. In verse 13, the Lord speaks. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And note here we have the all caps Lord. He uses his name. It was the Lord who had appeared to them before and made this promise in chapter 17. And he has returned here to remind them of that promise. See, in their human ways of thinking, with their imperfect faith, for we all possess imperfect faith to some extent, they find it hard to believe that everything God has said to them will actually come to be. But the question that God asks demands a negative answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course not. Whatever the Lord purposes comes to pass without fail, without limitation. The Lord is faithful to his promises and he states them once again. In verse 14, he again says, as he did in the previous chapter, that he will return at the appointed time and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah is caught, and she recognizes it, though she still seems to have a deficient view of who she's talking to, because when she is called out for having laughed, she denies it. Right to the face of God, the searcher of hearts, she lies. But he knows. And yet he has no wrath for Sarah, though she has lied to him. And though she has doubted him, he has grace and favor for her. Remember that this covenant with Abraham and his house is not a covenant of works. It is a covenant of grace. If Abraham and Sarah were expected to be good, expected to be sinless and perfect to receive the blessings of the covenant, they would have never made it this far. And we are reminded over and over again that though they are God's chosen people, They are sinful people. We also see in this announcement the beginning of a pattern in Scripture that will point us to greater things to come. If you were here back around Christmas, you remember how we looked at Hannah in 1 Samuel, a hopeless, barren woman who got visited and blessed with a promised son who would be a great man of Israel, a prophet and a priest. In a similar way, Samson came to Manoah and his barren wife in Judges 13. John the Baptist comes that way to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So in all these cases, we have children born to barren women by God's supernatural intervention. And yet these births serve merely as types of the greatest birth of all. What if the woman in question was not old and barren, but was a virgin. I mean, we see in our natural world today that, you know, sometimes women who are older than you might expect conceive and have children. But a virgin, that doesn't happen. That can't happen. That's impossible. And yet the supernatural birth of all supernatural births was a virgin giving birth to a son 
by the supernatural conceiving power of the Holy Spirit. Because nothing is impossible for the Lord. So Sarah is being blessed, even despite her sin and disbelief. And yes, God is intervening in her life in a supernatural way, but this points us on this side of the New Testament to greater realities of Christ. In fact, it will be a descendant of Abraham and Sarah and this son they are about to have that will be the Son of God and Son of Man through whom all of God's promises to them will come to their highest realization. But in verse 16, the conversation shifts away from Sarah and back to Abraham. We see that these visitors look towards Sodom. They intend to depart from Abraham and go that way. Abraham walks with them to send them off. And God will discuss with Abraham what is to come in Sodom. But first, this is framed in hope. It is set against the promises which God has made to Abraham, of which Abraham is once again reminded. As Abraham is the one with whom God has entered into covenants, the one that God has chosen to be the father of his chosen people, God will not hide from Abraham what is about to come. And we see again this affirmation in verse 18 that Abraham will be a great and mighty nation. Abraham's descendants will be many. But there is also the greater promise here restated. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The promises to Abraham, as I've said before, do not terminate on Abraham's physical and biological descendants. There is a plan and a place in these promises for all the nations of the earth. Just as with this sign of the miraculous birth and how it points us to Christ, we see here another statement that points to greater future realities in Christ, this blessing of all the nations. In fact, tonight we'll be looking at John chapter 10, and we'll see how Jesus as the good shepherd talks about making one sheepfold out of two, taking the sheep of Israel, the sheep of the Gentiles, combining them into one people under his care. But though this covenant with Abraham is certain to pass, and it is a covenant of grace, uh, these blessings come from an abundance of God's goodness and freedom, and salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone, we do see that there are requirements for the covenant people. There are things that in light of these promises and blessings, they ought to do. Those who belong to God, those who love him, will strive to obey and keep his commands as the Holy Spirit renews their hearts and minds and wills. And that's what we see in verse 19. Abraham is to command his children to keep the way of the Lord. Not only does he give his male children the sign of circumcision, as was commanded in the previous chapter, the mark of identity and ownership, but there is also a life, a way of living, a way of teaching and instruction, raising children in the knowledge of the Lord. They will be taught God's commands, and they are to do what they say in thankfulness and gratitude for God's love and blessings to them. But what does this have to do with Sodom and the visitors' impending departure there? Well, this brings us to our final point. After hospitality and hope, we come to the horror in verse 20 through the end of the chapter. 
God has just retold to Abraham his covenant blessings and told Abraham how he and his descendants should live in light of them. And yet here in verse 20, he pivots to Sodom and Gomorrah and what is coming there. In a certain sense, it shows us a contrast. It shows us a juxtaposition. There's the way of God's covenant people, and there's the way of those outside. They produce different ways of living and ultimately different outcomes. So in verse 20, we see that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and that their sin is very grave. Now, what does this mean? Well, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. We just saw that from Sarah a few verses ago. A little white lie to God's face. That was sin. And if God was dealing with her according to strict justice, that sin would be sufficient to damn her to death and the fires of hell forever. And yet, though all sin carries that severity, there are some sins which are particularly grievous and more severe in the sight of God than others. They particularly incur God's wrath and displeasure. We see this in our catechism where it says some sins in themselves and by way of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, as we see in more detail next week, it is homosexuality. It is sodomy. Hence the name. And not only is this an egregious sin, which is not only against God's law, but against creation and nature itself, sin that completely obliterates and disregards God's design for marriage and sex and the family, but it is being practiced in Sodom and Gomorrah widely and openly, and dare I say, as we are in the month of June, proudly. But again, we will get into that in more detail next week. So we see in verse 21 that God and his angels are going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see what is going on there. Now, it is not as though God doesn't know. It's not as though he's limited and he actually has to go and show up there in his human form to know what is going on. God is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He knows the sin The outcry of it has come to him. He has always known, for he knows all the thoughts, words, and deeds of men, past, present, and future. And he has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, though not as the author of sin. Yet God is revealing himself and coming to Sodom in a particular way. He is coming in judgment. Now he's also doing so in concern for Lot who despite this bad situation he finds himself in, he remains one of God's children, even if he has made some bad choices, made a mess of his life, and he will reap the consequences of them. We see that the two angels depart to go to Sodom, but the Lord remains there for a time with Abraham. Now Abraham picks up the clear implication of what God has said. He is going to Sodom in judgment, and it will face destruction for its sins. And this triggers a bit of negotiation, it would seem, between Abraham and God. Now, it's not really negotiation, because God has already purposed what will come to pass. But this is given to us to show the extent of God's grace, but also the certainty of his judgments, 
and the severity of sin. Abraham is concerned that God will destroy the righteous with the wicked. You could almost see Abraham making a charge against God of injustice if he were to destroy an entire city. Now, for one thing, this shows that Abraham does not know just how bad things in Sodom are by this point. He had some history with Sodom, but it was rather distant in the past. He did once deliver the city and its citizens from invaders, but again, it had been nearly 15 years. But Abraham must think that there is still enough righteous people in Sodom that destroying the whole city would do an injustice to them. He is wrong. He is wrong because he doesn't know how bad the situation is in Sodom, but he is wrong because he also seems to misestimate what God's justice in the situation requires, that all sin and unrighteousness is worthy of death. We'll get back to that more a little bit in a moment. But so, since Abraham has these concerns, he sets this number of 50. If there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, God, you can't kill them, can you? Well, God responds, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Now, again, God knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows how this is going to play out. But there are a couple of layers also to this talk of righteousness. On the one hand, no one born in Adam is righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there are those who are God's people. Those who, like Abraham, believed in God, and that is accounted to them as righteousness. There are those who are the people of Christ, who receive Christ's righteousness as their righteousness. And if there had been 50 of those in Sodom, 50 of God's people, those who had the righteousness that God works in them by faith and by grace, that would have been enough to turn away God's wrath. But then Abraham realizes that perhaps he set the number too high, so he lowers it a little. What about 45? Now he recognizes that he is God's inferior, and he recognizes that he could be seen as perhaps complaining, perhaps disputing with God's justice. And so he does address God with appropriate honor and recognition. He says, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And God still goes along. 45, he will relent. He will not destroy the city. Now this back and forth continues for quite some time. So next, Abraham tries 40. God will not destroy the city if there are 40. 30, same situation. 20, no wrath and judgment falls if there is 20. All the way down to 10. Will God destroy Sodom if 10 righteous souls are found there? God says that he will not. Now, perhaps Abraham thinks that he has finally lowered the bar sufficiently enough that it will save the city. I mean, Lot is there, right? And we remember that Lot was once a prosperous man. He had possessions, he had a household, he had servants and the like. Surely some of them worship God. Lot has a family by now. He has a wife and daughters and sons-in-law. Surely from all of that, you could come up with 
at least 10 people in the city would be spared. But sadly, this is not so. We will see next time that there may only, in fact, be one righteous soul left in Sodom. One accounted as righteous by faith. And in fact, only three people will even heed God's warning to escape and not look back. Sodom has been completely given over to its wickedness and sin and depravity. And the time for grace and repentance has run out. The time for wrath and judgment has come. So, we have seen two major aspects of this text today. We have seen God's grace and favor, his faithfulness to his covenant promises, the blessings he pours out upon his people. We've seen those on display to Abraham and Sarah in their house. God is able to keep his promises. He is able to bring his purposes to pass, whatever they may be. Abraham and Sarah will have the son of promise, and they will be a great nation. This even in the face of their own sin. Sarah lied to God in this chapter. We saw it. There's other sins that are still yet to come. But those children and grandchildren they have, and on down from there, they will be raised and they will be taught the knowledge of the Lord, as God's covenant often works and continues through families. And we have seen in this text the foreshadowing of glorious gospel realities that are fulfilled in Christ. The coming birth of Isaac and the circumstances surrounding it, they point to the miraculous birth of Jesus who will be the Savior of the world, Abraham's descendant through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham's faith rested on Christ. It looked to Christ. Does your faith rest on Christ and look to Christ? Are you accounted righteous by faith because of Christ's righteousness? Your own works, your own righteousness are not enough to save you. But those who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they receive his perfect righteousness. They have forgiveness of sins. They have the hope of everlasting life. But the other reality that we have been confronted with in this text is the reality that God is going to face in Sodom. That is life outside of God's covenant. Life apart from the faith that receives and rests upon Christ and receives his righteousness. And that is an ominous picture of things to come. God's judgment will be poured out on a city and a people that persists in sinful rebellion against him. Now, many people do not experience this sort of judgment in this world or in this life, even as they live lives of high-handed rebellion against God. And yet the judgment on Sodom is just a small picture of a far greater calamity to come at the end of the age, the end of the world where God will strike down all his enemies and they will be judged at his final judgment. And those who have rebelled against him, they will be cast into hell and eternal suffering and condemnation forever. Those are the options. Those are the two outcomes. To be found in Christ at the day of judgment, to have his righteousness accounted as your righteousness, 
and to have life and blessedness and salvation or to be found in sin and rebellion and be destroyed. That's it. Those are the only two ways. There's the way in the city of God. There's the way of the city of man. And everyone will be one or the other. And so may we all here be found in Christ today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for the glorious realities of Christ that it points us to, the Son of promise, the Son born supernaturally, the Son whose righteousness becomes our righteousness so that we might have forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life. I pray that all here gathered would know this gospel, receive this gospel, and rest upon it for their righteousness and salvation and that we would all be salt and light to take this gospel into a lost and dying world. Father, we have also seen in this text the reality of wrath and judgment and condemnation that sin demands. We recognize even in our world today how we see people living in sins and flaunting sins, even similar to those that were in Sodom. I pray that you would do a work in this world, that you would turn people from their sins and draw them to salvation, that evil would be suppressed and that righteousness would be done. And again, Father, I pray we would be faithful to take your gospel to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.